Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Wendy McLean, Senior Writer and Presenter at Vitally. Vitally is a digital platform, a health professional resource and a distribution service all in one. Firstly, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather here. I would also like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Today on Common Ground, I'm going to be discussing long COVID in children and adolescents. While children and adolescents with severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 infection, are generally considered to have a lower risk of hospitalisation and lower mortality rates than adults, there are now growing concerns regarding the long-term health effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection in this population. Children have generally been thought to be less vulnerable to the longer-term effects of COVID-19, with the risk decreasing the younger they are. And it was thought that this is because younger children have fewer angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 or ACE2 receptors, the entry point for the SARS-CoV-2. However, with the emergence of the Omicron variant and its subvariants, which are far more infectious than the previous forms of the virus, this has led to a higher proportion of children becoming infected. Furthermore, emerging evidence from case studies, patient support groups and clinicians highlight that children with asymptomatic and symptomatic uh, COVID-19 are experiencing long-term effects weeks to months after the initial infection. Now, there are two long-term consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infection in children that raise concern. The first is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C. This is a severe but rare hyperinflammatory disease that occurs about two to six weeks after the initial infection. It has similarities to other known inflammatory disorders, including Kawasaki disease and toxic shock syndrome. In children who develop it, organs and tissues, including the heart, blood vessels, kidneys, lungs, nervous system, digestive system, the skin and the eyes, can become severely inflamed. The latest figures out from the USA indicate that as of the 2nd of May, in the US there had been 8,210 missed C cases related to COVID-19 and 68 deaths. The second long-term consequence is post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, PASC, or what we know as long COVID. Clinicians worldwide have reported increasing numbers of children and adolescents diagnosed with long COVID in the past six months. However, the actual true number and how many children are affected remains a hotly debated topic. And looking at the studies that have been published to date, the prevalence of long COVID in children and adolescents varies widely, anywhere from 4% to 66%. And this variability arises from a lack, largely from a lack of a paediatric definition of long COVID, and also because of the heterogeneity in these studies. So including differences in the sample size, the age of the population included, the duration, follow-up, and how the symptoms are actually measured. But there are other complicating factors. 
many children haven't and won't be tested for SARS-CoV-2, either because they're asymptomatic or they've had mild symptoms. In addition, not all children with long COVID seek medical attention, making tracking its incidence challenging. And then furthermore, symptoms that present in adults don't always present the same in children. For example, fatigue can manifest in young children as hyperactivity rather than sluggishness, and this can make it difficult for parents to detect the problem. As a result, many studies likely only identify the occurrence of long COVID in adolescents who can self-report their symptoms. There has been one Australian study following long-term clinical outcomes in children three to six months after acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. This study followed 171 children at a dedicated COVID-19 follow-up clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Between the 21st of March 2020 and the 17th of March 2021, so just keep in mind this is before Omicron, 8% reported long COVID symptoms up to eight weeks after infection in this study, and all of these patients had been symptomatic. The most common symptoms were mild post-viral cough, which lasted three to eight weeks, and post-viral fatigue, which lasted six to eight weeks from symptom onset. There have been a handful of controlled studies which compare SARS-CoV-2 positive patients to uninfected control groups, and these may provide a more accurate estimate of long COVID prevalence in children and adolescents. And one of these recent controlled studies is the Children and Young People with Long COVID, the CLOCK study, which was a controlled study conducted by researchers at the University College London. Now, this study included 3,065 11 to 17-year-olds in the UK who had a positive PCR test between January and March 2021, and a match control group of 3,739 11 to 17-year-olds who tested negative over that period. Three months after being tested, both groups completed a questionnaire regarding the symptoms they were experiencing. Now, both groups reported symptoms, but children who had tested positive, um, so it was 66.5% of this group actually, were more likely to have long COVID symptoms than those who tested negative, and that was 53.3% of that group were experiencing symptoms. Furthermore, those who had tested positive were nearly twice as likely to report three or more symptoms at three months and some of the main ones were fatigue, shortness of breath, and persistent headache. Now, as I mentioned, there's only been a handful of these controlled studies to date, and they have produced conflicting results. Some have shown no difference in symptom occurrence in SARS-CoV-2 positive and negative groups, and others have shown differences. But I think what is interesting is that all of these studies are showing symptoms in SARS-CoV-2 negative control groups. And what this does highlight is that some of these symptoms may be due to the biological mechanisms of SARS-CoV-2, but some of these symptoms and some of these mental health symptoms may actually just be due to the pandemic itself and the stress from isolation and lockdowns. And there may be other causes as well, so things like paediatric viruses or illnesses. Um, So it really does highlight the importance of doing controlled studies with these two comparison groups. Looking now at the clinical presentation, 
Part of what makes defining long COVID difficult is that it appears to take many forms and more than 100 symptoms have been identified in children and adolescents involving many different organs and body systems, so cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, skin, nervous system and general somatic symptoms. A recent review of 14 studies, including nearly 20,000 children, identified the most common symptoms to be headache, fatigue, concentration difficulties, sleep disturbance, abdominal pain, myalgia and arthralgia. However, there was a wide variability in the occurrence of these symptoms. For example, fatigue ranged from 3% to 87% in these studies. What these studies did show, well, the majority of them, was that most symptoms did not persist longer than 12 weeks. Long COVID symptoms can occur in isolation or combination. They can remain constant over time. They can be transient or have an intermittent relapsing pattern. Furthermore, symptoms may not appear until weeks after the initial infection and they can vary in their intensity. Now, all of these factors complicate diagnosing long COVID. Furthermore, experts suggest that long COVID may actually encompass several different conditions, including myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. So chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, is a severe multisystemic disease characterised by profound fatigue following exertion. This is known as post-exertional malaise, and this is not relieved by sleep or rest. It also is characterised by unrefreshing sleep and cognitive impairment or brain fog. POTS is a form of orthostatic intolerance and involves dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which impairs blood circulation on standing and reduces blood flow to the brain. Now, this can cause dizziness, lightheadedness, heart palpitations and brain fog. So what is the cause of long COVID in children? Children have several protective factors which leads to a mild severity and duration of the initial infection. And these factors include things like the ACE2 receptors that I mentioned. They have fewer comorbidities and age-related endothelial damage. They have a stronger innate immune response and active thymic function, which means that they have an increased presence of T cells which can recognise viral proteins. And other protective factors include environmental or non-inheritable factors. So things like past infections, vaccines, nutrition and the gut microbiome. And these protective factors we know can reduce the severity of acute infection, but whether they're protective against long COVID in children and adolescents, we don't know and more research is required. The underlying mechanisms causing the various clinical spectrum of long COVID are still unidentified, but they can be divided into two groups. So the first is related to organ damage during acute illness, and the second includes other less well-characterised mechanisms. Now in adults, these mechanisms are theorised to include excessive immune response, reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, uh, viral-induced autoimmunity, and a sustained inflammatory response caused by the persistence of the virus in, or viral fragments in tissue and organs. 
These mechanisms may also be at play in children and adolescents, although some researchers argue that there may be some other processes involved that are not necessarily the same as adults. And they argue that there is some slight differences in the symptom profiles of adults and children. So for example, many adults experience brain fog and neurological issues, um, symptoms which many believe are driven by uh, presence of autoantibodies. Whereas in children, they're tending to see more of the fatigue, headaches, dizziness, and pain in the muscle and joints. And it's argued that if autoantibodies are the main driving cause of long COVID, then these should be produced in irrespective of age and produce a similar symptom profile. Another theory involves gut dysbiosis and intestinal permeability. The gastrointestinal tract is the, a frequent target of SARS-CoV-2, given the elevated expression of ACE2 receptors along the mucosa. Several studies have found a strong association between gut dysbiosis and persistent symptoms in adults with COVID-19 up to six months after virus clearance. This gut dysbiosis is characterised by reduced microbiota diversity, increased abundance of opportunistic pathogens, and fewer gut commensals with immunomodulatory effects. A recent study of children with post-COVID inflammation found that a prolonged presence of SARS-CoV-2 in the gastrointestinal tract led to the release of zonulin, that's a biomarker of intestinal permeability. This enhanced intestinal permeability allows the viral particles that are still residing in the gut to enter the bloodstream, circulate around the body and produce excessive or hypoinflammatory response. However, as with adults, there's likely to be multiple mechanisms at play and specific populations are at higher risk. Several studies have investigated risk factors for long COVID in children. One study reported that older age was significantly associated with persistent symptoms, with children greater than six years of age being at a higher risk. And this is in line with several other studies which have shown positive correlation between increasing age and long COVID symptoms. Other risk factors include female gender, severe COVID-19, being overweight or obese, and other long-term comorbidities. Now, interestingly, in children, allergic diseases are also associated with a higher risk of long COVID. Now, one of the main theories behind allergies is this imbalance between the body's white blood cells, so our T helper 1 and our T helper 2 cells. T helper 1 cells act as our first line of defence against external invaders, and they generate the inflammation in response to viruses and bacteria. So we need this to fight against SARS-CoV-2. TH2 cells, on the other hand, are the second-line defence and produce the antibodies. In a well-functioning immune system, both groups work in harmony. Um, however, there is an imbalance in some individuals which can result in allergy or autoimmunity. Therefore, the association between allergy and the risk of long COVID in children has led some researchers to propose that mast cell activation syndrome or a T helper 2 dominant immunological response could be a cause of long COVID symptoms. How can we support children with long COVID? Managing children and even adults with long COVID is challenging. There's no recognised treatment. There's no universal or recognised standardised clinical management guideline. 
However, considering the multi-organ involvement that we are seeing in long COVID, we need a multidisciplinary approach. So after an initial assessment, referral to other specialists may be required. And this could include a team of cardiologists, rheumatologists, neurologists or psychologists and pulmonologists. And given that symptoms can emerge weeks to months after acute infection, we really do need some regular follow-up. And also we're facing this epidemic of mental health issues in our youth and adolescents. Now, whether these are related to long COVID and the actual viral infection or whether it's just from the stress caused by restrictions and social isolation and the pandemic itself, we need to address this. And there was a recent meta-analysis of 29 studies, which included 80,000 youth. And it reported that one in four children and adolescents globally were experiencing elevated depressive symptoms and one in five had elevated anxiety. And these rates were double the pre-pandemic levels. And in addition, doctors and paediatricians have reported seeing an increase in the number of cases of children with things like tics and eating disorders. So therefore, supporting mental health is critical. And again, multidisciplinary approach using therapies such as biofeedback, cognitive behavioural therapy, psychology, psychotherapy and mindfulness techniques can be beneficial for mental health. And these can also be beneficial for things like psychosomatic symptoms and chronic pain. And furthermore, nutrition is going to play a key role as well. What we have seen during the acute stage of SARS-CoV-2 infection is that there are poorer outcomes with nutrient, specific nutrient deficiencies. So uh, deficiencies in vitamin D, zinc, selenium and magnesium have all been associated with more severe forms of COVID-19 and or higher mortality rates. Um, these nutrients we need um, to reduce inflammation, oxidative stress and support immune function. So it would make sense that we would need adequate levels of these nutrients for our children and adolescents. And there aren't any specific studies yet looking at these nutrients, but when you look at their key actions, you can understand why we would need these to prevent or manage long COVID. So B vitamins, we need it for energy metabolism, immunomodulation, and they're cofactors in mitochondrial enzymes and protein enzymes. They're antioxidant and they regulate inflammatory pathways. Vitamin C is one of the body's most important antioxidants. It's required for neurotransmitter synthesis, energy metabolism, and innate and adaptive immune function. Furthermore, fatigue, pain, brain fog, and depression-like symptoms are known symptoms of a vitamin C deficiency. Vitamin D is another one. We know it has immunomodulatory effects um, in both the innate and adaptive immune responses, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and has a protective effect on endothelial dysfunction. It's also a protective effect in the development of autoimmunity, which we are seeing in COVID-19 patients, and it is an important regulator of gastrointestinal microbiota. And interestingly, supplementation has been shown to mitigate Epstein-Barr viral reactivation, which we know we're seeing in our COVID-19 patients. Magnesium is another key nutrient. Deficiency is associated with inflammation, conditions like type 2 diabetes and hypertension. Deficiency is associated with mitochondrial dysfunction and is possibly causally related to fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome, which we know is a common manifestation of long COVID. 
And then other key nutrients, of course, are selenium and zinc, which anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and key for innate and adaptive immune function. We also need to enhance our intake of phytochemicals, compounds in fruit and vegetables, things like resveratrol, quercetin, sulforane, and curcumin. These molecules have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. Preclinical evidence shows that they are antiviral and therefore, you know, again, these are key nutrients to ensure that we have adequate intakes. They also have antiplatelet aggregation activity, so may reduce the risk of thrombosis. And then, of course, we need to support the gut microbiome. So the association between a persistently altered gut microbiome and long-term sequelae of COVID-19, together with emerging evidence from small clinical trials with probiotics um, in patients with long COVID, suggests that there really is an opportunity to ameliorate these long-lasting symptoms by regulating the gut microbiome. Uh, there was a small recent experimental study which supplemented with a lactobacillus probiotic blend and inulin for 30 days. And in long COVID patients, they significantly improved gastrointestinal symptoms, cough, fatigue, and well-being. Now, these patients, their average symptom length was 120 days. And then there was a second RCT, including 200 long COVID patients. And they had oral supplementation with a probiotic and an enzyme complex for 14 days. And this significantly improved their fatigue, so both their physical fatigue symptoms and their brain fog. So in conclusion, there is increasing evidence that children can be affected by long-term sequelae after COVID-19 infection. However, the relative scarcity of studies on long COVID in this population and the limitations of those reported to date means that the true incidence of this syndrome in children and adolescents remains uncertain. Studies show that most children will recover within the first six months, but not all. And in addition, studies indicate that the risk is higher in older children and those with allergic disease, comorbidities, or in those who are overweight or obese. The lack of a paediatric definition of long COVID really has hindered research and diagnosis, as well as appropriate clinical management and treatment of children suffering long-term symptoms after SARS-CoV-2. The first definition of long COVID in children was recently published and it states that symptoms must follow a confirmed case of COVID-19, impact the child's life and physical, mental or social well-being, and persist for at least 12 weeks. Going forward, if we can adopt this definition, um, this would allow researchers to compare and evaluate the studies on prevalence, disease course and outcome of long COVID. So long COVID is an emerging health crisis and research is urgently needed to assess the impact of things like age, disease severity and duration, virus strain and vaccination status on the risk of long COVID in this age group. Furthermore, we need research to understand the biological mechanisms and causes of long COVID and we need interventional trials to inform treatment strategies and improve long-term COVID patient outcomes. To our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in today. Please feel free to subscribe to Common Ground. We really do appreciate your support and feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much.